We have a great guest today. Our guest today is a forefather of the internet. He helped create TCPIP. He's been at the intersection of revolutionary advancements in technology throughout the years. He's the chief internet evangelist at Google, and he's currently working on the interplanetary internet. Just pause for a second and how cool that is. Today's guest is also usually the best dressed in the room. Please welcome Vint Cerf. You're listening to C-Suite Blueprint, the show for C-Suite leaders. Here we discuss no BS approaches to organizational readiness and digital transformation. Let's start the show. Dr. Vince Cerf, thank you so much for joining me today. Well, it's absolutely a pleasure. I always enjoy our chats and this one will be no different, I'm sure. You know, as a forefather of the internet, over the years, I'm curious, have you seen all these things that have gotten layered on top of it? Web, Web 2.0, and then Web 3.0, social, IoT, and it's just ramping up more and more and more. And people talk about, you know, some of the divisiveness of social media. As you look back and you see all this happen, does it feel a little bit like you're just watching your baby grow up into a meth addict? Or like, what is it like? (laughs) No, I don't feel like that at all. And in fact, what I am seeing and what you are seeing was very much a part of the deliberate design of the system. It was designed to evolve. I'm not claiming that we're as good as DNA or anything like that, but we intentionally learned lessons about layering architectures from the ARPANET project, and we recognize the utility and value of both adding new layers vertically and extending layers horizontally. And what you are seeing, what I've been seeing over the course of now 50 years, is the addition of new protocols the addition of new layers like the World Wide Web and HTTP, introduction of, uh, let's say, backward improvement on security, for example, with uh, DNSSEC or with HTTPS or uh, with IPSEC or a variety of other digital signatures on files, uh, the main name system improvements. um, Anyway, there are a whole bunch of new... And another example is a new protocol called QUIC, which is an alternative to running TCP over TLS. And it's an important development. It it came out of Google. But I'm happy, in fact, I won't say proud because that claims more credit than I deserve, but I'm very happy to see how flexible this system has been in terms of ingesting new ideas and supporting new applications. That's great perspective and that was great foresight. You know, some words that I always see when, when I'm reading about you that is associated with you, other than fun and well-dressed and, and kind, is innovation and revolution. And I get really excited about the revolution word. I think a lot of people, they, get, they, they focus in on innovation or disruption. But the revolution word, you know, that's where the change happens, right? That's where something gets taken out and something new gets put in place. And I'd love to explore that topic of change because we encounter organizations that are going through either through rapid growth or adoption of IoT or, or whatever, just through rapid change. And successful change is so difficult. And I don't know if you have a secret recipe for a successful change in your back pocket. Well, actually, one of the most important aspects to dealing with change is even recognizing that it's coming. I mean, there's a famous expression about preserving your business. If somebody is going to eat your lunch, it might as well be you, which means that you had better eat your own applications and replace them with something else before somebody else does. Because if you do it, at least it's yours. If you don't do it, then somebody else will do it. And then your business might evaporate. 
So that's one, one thing to observe about change. The second thing is that change often changes, parametrically changes the space that you're in. And sometimes that calls for very different solutions than the ones that used to work. And so it isn't just a question of cranking up the bandwidth or reducing the latency or increasing the computational power. Sometimes you literally have to rethink how to solve problems. And I'll give you an example of that in the Internet case. As we started working at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory on the interplanetary Internet. That's so cool, by the way. It really is cool. I mean, this is just, this is sort of like, holy cow, we're living in a science fiction story which isn't science fiction. It's, or at the very least, it's engineering turning science fiction into reality, which is what engineering is all about. So here's the thing. We started out thinking we could use the TCP IP protocols. I mean, hell, they've been around for quite some time by 1998. They've been running very well. You know, what's the problem? Works on Mars, surely. The problem is between Earth and Mars or between Mars and Jupiter or whatever else. The distances are literally astronomical. Aha, you're supposed to laugh there. And so you literally can't use the mechanisms that made TCP IP work. So we had to invent a whole new suite of protocols that we call the bundle protocol and the Wicklider transmission protocol in order to make this work in high latency and highly potentially highly disrupted environments. And the, the willingness to embrace that kind of change, to literally step back and say, okay, we're in a different parametric space than we were before. Forget about all the things that used to work. Rid yourself of assumptions that ping is your friend because it's nearly real time and rethink how to do this. Uh, that's a very important capacity to have if you're going to cope with serious change. That's, I mean, yeah, and I would imagine that also requires quite a bit of humbleness to, to go through that rethinking process. Well, it's it not only uh, perhaps, I don't know if humble is the right thing, but I can tell you that it does require some courage and willingness to, to admit that this idea doesn't work anymore. And that's a tough one. Some, you know, I'll give you an example of, of, uh, from science. Science is about formulating theories based on what you see and then making predictions and then measuring to find out whether the predictions match the theory and or whether the measurements match the predictions. And, you know, so imagine you're a scientist and you are going to go test your theory. So you make a bunch of predictions, then you make an experiment, you do a bunch of measurements. And since this is a podcast, people can't see me waving my hands. But imagine that you've laid out a, a chart and you're hitting everything exactly where you predict it was going to be, except for this one point over here. Now, there's one scientist looks at that and clinging to his old theory says, well, it's probably just a measurement error. I'll ignore it. And everything else is wonderful. And the other scientist looks at it and he says, huh, that's funny. And then tries to figure out what's that point doing there. And he ends up getting the Nobel Prize because he discovers that the theory is broken. And it didn't predict that point and it should have. So let's hope that the people who are listening to this podcast are that kind of scientist who are willing to say, gosh, that was wrong. Or maybe it was, wasn't right enough. Or maybe it wasn't accurate enough. Maybe I've measured more precisely than I could before. The previous theory worked okay in a coarse way, but it doesn't work in a more refined one. You need to be able to say that of your designs, of your models, of your business structures, of your organizational structures when times change. 
More scientists with courage. Sounds good to me. How do you walk the line, though, of what do you throw away? What don't you throw away? I, I was just thinking of the conversation we had recently where we were geeking out about home automation. And, you know, with my my wife is a bit of a, a Luddite. And so I need to make sure a real switch works for everything, right? And maybe that's good. Maybe that's bad. But, you know, it's kind of that topic of resilient systems. That example that, that you were talking about where maybe you, you need an app to open your car, right? Or you need an app to make a phone call. You can't just make a phone call. At what point do you get rid of the old for the, the, to move forward versus hold on to some of the old to, to maintain resilience? Well, that's a good question. And for digital preservation, sometimes you want to hang on to the old software and find some way to make it run so that you can access objects, digital objects that were created 50 years ago, and for which there is no backward compatible alternative. And so for digital preservation, there may be a very strong motivation for maintaining the ability to run old software, for example, and old operating systems or emulate old hardware. And the other thing I think you need to be very careful about is as good as innovation can be and, and as attractive as it can be, if it doesn't work or if there's some condition under which it might not work, thinking through how to deal with that case is super important. You can't just give lip service to backup. And at Google, for example, one of the things we do on an annual basis is to run a disaster recovery test where we actually shut off primary services and turn on backup services and run on them live. And that's the only way you'll ever find out whether you really have a backup system or not. I don't care how much desktop simulation you do if you don't run live. It's kind of like the guy that religiously backs up his tape. You know, he's got an app on his laptop and it backs up onto, takes three hours, blah, blah, blah. Never, ever tested recovery from that thing until finally the hardware breaks, buys a new processor, he tries to back it up, and it turns out it's never written anything on the tape. So, you know, it's, it, it, I could not overemphasize how important it is to be serious about backing things up. And I don't mean by this just back up your storage. I'm talking about systems and resilience and backup systems, especially for stuff that you're really relying on. Yeah, and, and thinking of those conditions where, where it won't work as being your guidance as far as this is where we need to maybe preserve some of these older ways of doing things. You know, pen and pencil is still my friend. I keep notebooks. Uh, you know, people say, well, why don't you just, you know, use your laptop or, or use your mobile? And the answer is, well, it's easier to sketch things on these pieces of paper. They have a lifetime measurable in decades if not centuries, show me a piece of hardware, show me a piece of uh, digital media that has a lifetime that's longer than 30 years. I mean, we haven't even had these things that long. So some of them, we don't even know how long they're going to last. You know, I, I'm, I'm personally always trying to figure out how much of it is me getting older or, or, or you know, being set in my own ways versus holding on to the past. You know, even I don't know, when Apple got rid of the headphone jack, right? You know, I grumbled about that and I was frustrated by that. You know, what am I going to do if, if the, you know, wireless is great, but what happens when wireless, the battery breaks, right? And, and I'm always struggling even personally to figure out which of me is holding on to the past versus uh, allowing for change. Well, I have to tell you, I want, I want to kill people that change connector types. I mean, you know, because at some point it just goes, you go crazy because I don't give a good example. 
I have a hard drive that I've been backing up my old 17-inch Mac on for a long time. And I've, you know, been patting myself on the back. Boy, you're so good about, religious about backing this stuff up. Then one day I thought, well, wait a minute. I'll never get another 17-inch Mac. So if I have to back up from the hard drive, I may not have a Macintosh with any matching connector that can even gather the data. And maybe there is none. Maybe there will be no driver or anything. We'll know how to even with a physical, you know, adapter. We'll know how to read it. And so I I realized, you know, at that point that maybe this religion had not served me well, and that I need to think of a better way to do that backup. So, yes, sometimes you have to step back and make sure you've answered the question, is this going to work under, you know, and then pick a scenario. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Given your time with DARPA, I'm curious, what, if any, do you think that commercial organizations can learn from the way that DARPA does things? I know I was, I don't know if this was the same when you were there, but but when I worked on some DARPA projects, it was very much this like three-phase system where, you know, you, you have um, separate teams kind of working redundantly on the same problem during the first phase. And then you get into the second phase, you throw some of that away, you start over again. It was extremely inefficient, but I think it there was some great output came from it. And I'm, I'm curious, your experience, what, if anything, you think other organizations can learn from the way DARPA does things? Well, and my time probably preceded yours because I was there from uh, 76 to 82, which was a long time ago, right? So the projects I tended to work on did not do the triple play thing. But what we did have was a lot of diversity involved in the projects. So we have many different perspectives, and we kept iterating. We kept trying things out, learning lessons, finding things that didn't work, you know, going back, rethinking, and redesigning, re-implementing, and testing. And the fact that DARPA had both the capacity to support things for significant periods of time and had its patient capital, so to speak, but also was persistent about making things work. I mean, trying to make things work. The, the, you know, the important outcome was, does it work or not? That's a good test. I mean, you know, it's really hard to fake that. Either it works or it doesn't work. So in my case, I had n- many different projects, but uh, the good part was that they all coalesced into this one gigantic thing, which we call the Internet Project, which involved the packet satellite net, the packet radio net, packet cryptography, packet security the protocols themselves, the internet-based systems, and then all of the applications that ran on top of them. So all of that was manageable in my head anyway, because it was all aimed at the same target, which is see if we can get this to actually work. And so I think one thing that's been very obvious in the internet story is that the government has been a huge and important player in patiently supporting over decades the evolution and development of this system. And at NSF, at the Department of Energy, uh, at NASA, and at ARPA, all of them put long-term funding in place. NSF is still funding stuff. They started in 1982, and they're still pursuing uh, network research. Of course, it's, it's different. It changes over time, and the targets are different, but the persistence is there. And you don't always get that in the private sector. They're most, uh, depending on where the capital comes from, which is why it's so important for the government to stay very involved in basic research and, uh, and tech transfer and, and applied research, because it has the capacity to be patient. 
It's funny. In in many cases, you almost see the polar opposite of, you know, in, instead of patient's capital, it's it's got to happen extremely quickly. And instead of the very simple test of does this work or not? There's a myriad of ROI calculations that just confuse everyone from what the heck are we actually trying to do here? So I think I'd like to use, does the, does, does this thing work or not more often? Cause it, uh, I think it grounds everyone. Well, for me anyway, it's, it's a really wonderful acid test. And, and when people say, well, this is a dumb idea. And, and my answer is, I'll tell you what, if it doesn't work, you, you're free to call it a dumb idea. If it does work, then we can argue over, over that. But there's, it's hard to argue with something that works. And that's the other problem you run into when you talk about change. Sometimes the old things still work well enough that it's hard to get people to do something new. That's the tough side of things that work is that they persist. <laughs> that's right. And then you start factoring in human fears and patterns and biases and gets really messy. Well, you know, I don't want to have to spend time learning to do something new. I've been doing this for the last 30 years. I'm really good at it. So don't give me your new thing. And they keep saying, yes, but it's faster and cheaper. And if we do it this way, then we can do all these other things. And, you know, your reaction is leave me alone. Go bother somebody else. Yeah. I know we're running up on time. We've got two quick questions, fun questions for you. So the first one is, is it a little bit of a bummer that we don't have a night system here and that Tim Berners-Lee gets to be Sir Tim Berners-Lee and you don't get to get the, the night? Uh, listen, I have a solution to this problem. You know, I want you to notice, first of all, that Brexit happened. Now, we could argue over whether it's a good idea or a bad idea, but Brexit has happened. So the UK is now free of the EU. Second, you know, we've seen some fairly awkward, maybe even awful political stress here in the United States. My proposition is that we should simply declare that the American experiment is over and that we're returning the country to the Queen. We're inviting Canada, Australia, and the New Zealand to reform the British Empire, at which point we can have titles again. <laughs> I'm on board. Next question. So the, the next and last question is, what is the best advice that you've ever received? Uh, the best advice that I ever got, quite honestly, came from a Nobel Prize winner, Josh Lutterberg. Bless his heart, he's not with us anymore. He was uh, knight, uh, knighted. He was uh, Nobeled for his research on recombinant DNA. He, I was lucky to have uh, contact with him while I was at Stanford University, and again as uh, vice president of the Corporation for National Research Initiatives, which Bob Kahn started in 1986, and Josh was on the board. Uh, Bob and I were working on digital libraries, and I remember spending a substantial amount of time covering the whiteboard with an explanation for Josh about what it was we were trying to do, what the motivations were, and you know, all this other stuff. And at the end of it, Josh looked at me and he said, Vint, do something. And, you know, that's the point was, don't just talk about it, do something. That's the best advice I ever got. I love it. That's great advice. Well, Dr. Sheriff, I really thank you for your time. I appreciate it. And I, I enjoy any time we get to speak. So thank you so much. Well, first of all, just call me Vint like everybody else does. Second, this was surely at least as much fun for me as it might have been for you. And third, uh, to the folks who are listening to this, you know, I'm not smarter than anybody else. But I can, I can tell you that if you don't step outside of your own box every once in a while, you'll get trapped in it. So Keep that in mind. Solid advice. Thanks so much, Vint. Bye-bye. Technology should serve vision, not set it. 
At Intevity, we design clear blueprints for organizational readiness and digital transformation that allow companies to chart new paths. Then we drive the implementation of those plans with our client partners in service of growth. Find out more at www.intevity.com. You've been listening to C-Suite Blueprint. If you like what you've heard, be sure to hit subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to make sure you never miss a new episode. And while you're there, we'd love it if you could leave a rating. Just give us however many stars you think we deserve. Until next time.